You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. A shameful prejudice against those with cheerful or generous sentiments has long marked our society, an assumption that those of a sunny outlook lack the understanding, intelligence, and gravity of those spilling bile. What a false and corrosive belief. In a similar way, these yellow and black bilefuls exaggerate into unpardonable outrages, the small errors and missteps into which those of us engaged in the business of the world are occasionally led, despite our best efforts and entire goodwill. The unfairness and hypocrisy of this can make one extremely angry. Whit Stillman was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay for his film Metropolitan. His other films include Barcelona, The Last Days of Disco, and Damsels in Distress. He's the author of The Last Days of Disco with Cocktails at Petrosian afterwards. His new film is Love and Friendship, based on an unpublished novella told in epistolary form by Jane Austen. He also wrote a novel based on Austen's novella. Thank you for joining me, Whit. Thanks a lot for having me. We live in an age where one of the technological forces is that's changing our society at the core is what we might call remix. Yes. And this book and movie and the original uh, work are all seamlessly combined into a, a remix. I think it's a really interesting project. When did you discover the Jane Austen novella and what led you to decide, hey, I want to take this and remix it? Well, it's a long story, and I don't think you want the whole story, but when I was a sophomore in college and a, a depressed uh, moron, I picked up a copy of a book called Northanger Abbey and read it and thought it was terrible. And the author was Jane Austen, so I said that Jane Austen was terribly overrated. Later, got to love Jane Austen, um, and, and 30 years after the initial bad impression, saw a copy of Northanger Abbey and thought, since I loved everything else by Jane Austen, I should give it a chance again. So I bought this edition, and as that had been a parody of Gothic novels, and I hadn't understood that originally, and after university had edited Gothic novels, among other books, at Doubleday, um, I really appreciated um, the novel the second time. But what I really loved was the novella published just after it in this Penguin edition, which was Lady Susan, because it reunited me with my first love through Jane Austen, because it, remi- it reminded me a lot of Oscar Wilde. It was Jane Austen channeling Oscar Wilde 80 years ahead of time. I thought that uh, the uh, combination of Jane Austen, both as an author and as a character in the book, was really a brilliant move. Did the book? Did you decide to write the book before the movie, or did you adapt the movie and then take the movie, uh, the book that you wrote from the movie? I'd started working on it as a film script, but um, as often with my projects, it was taking a long time, and that was intentional. I thought that this is something that'll, that should take a long time because changing epistolary to dramatized is a high hill to climb. Um, and while I was working on it, um, I'd give it to people to read, and I saw that this script, unlike other scripts, was a good read. So long before... It became a financed movie. It was something friends like reading. And I then thought, well, 
I could try my second hand at a film-based novel. And I tweeted out something um, that I was interested in doing a novel because agents said it's impossible, you know, to do it without writing it first and all this kind of stuff. And so I immediately got um, a reply and uh, from an assistant at, at Little Brown. And within a month, I had a contract. So I had the contract for the novel before I knew whether the film would ever happen. And then I blew through all my deadlines um, on the novel. I was supposed to finish it before the film. But I'm really glad in retrospect that I didn't finish it then because I discovered a character, a marvelous character, in making the film. And that's Sir James Martin. He wasn't much, I, don't, I didn't feel, in the novella. But um, I, we cast this wonderful sort of magical actor, Tom Bennett, who created this really funny version of uh, Sir James Martin. And then I kept writing scenes for Sir James Martin, so he looms large in the film. Uh, he, he is a brilliant actor. It's a lovely part in the film. He's also a lot of fun in the movie, in the book, um, both by virtue of his presence and also by virtue of what other people say about him. Uh, as I was reading this book, I thought, kept thinking that this is a book of, um, let's see what I, I, it's a book where everybody expresses themselves in vicious gentility. It's savage courtesy. It is brutal politesse. Or it is polite brutality, <laughs> courteous savagery, and genteel viciousness. It, the, well, actually, it's blank honesty, which seems like brutality. Because <laughs> they're very honest about a lot of things. Well, that's one of the things I really loved about Lady Susan. She will immediately say the very first true, most hurtful thing that comes to her lips and the quips that come in this book and the dialogue come really fast and thick. It's a lot of fun to read. The good thing about finding the Sir James Martin character is that matched with ha having been immersed in the memoirs of by Jane Austen's nephew, that it created this other character, uh, his nephew Rufus, Rufus Martin Colonna. Mm -hmm. And oh. so the, the, <laughs> the uh, Martin genetics combined with the sort of pretentious of the dutiful nephew um, created created the character, and I wouldn't have had that if I'd started um, the uh, the novel before having finished the film. Well, one of the things I thought that was very interesting was the levels of narration in this book, because there's I think maybe four. There's the original letters by what you call uh, the uh, spinster amanuensis. <laughs> spinster. Authoress. Uh, Spencer Authoress. And that is... Uh, she is the amaranthus of the de Courcys, <laughs> the venomous de Courcys. <laughs> and then we have the uh, story told by Rufus. And Rufus claims that he can fill in all the blanks. And this leads me first to one of the immediate observations is how often the characters in this book have to explain how they came to this information. That's a really interesting aspect that we don't find in current novels. We just assume that everybody knows everything. Yes. I think that we can... I mean, there's a huge resource in literature in going back to the first elements. Mm -hmm. I mean, in almost anything, I like the origins. And um, like the origins of film, um, they had many techniques, many things they felt they needed to do that we've sort of forgotten about or neglected to do. And I find it, like like Daniel Defoe, he pretended everything was true. And like, pretending everything is true is, is a wonderful thing in, in literature. Well, that reminds me, too, of when you read Dracula. The original Bram Stoker's Dracula reads like a, a brilliant experimental novel, combines all these 
letters and journals and, and diaries and all sorts of things in a kind of like a, a pretend it's all true manner that is really um, seems strikingly authentic in these days. It still seems rich and readable. In a, in a bien um, next to <clears throat> where I live in Paris, um, I found one of those inexpensive Wordsworth editions, an obscure Scottish work of 200 years ago by a, a someone mostly a poet. And unfortunately, I lost it. I lost the book in the supermarket within a day before I'd really read it. But I did see that it, it did sort of the same thing that I wanted to do with the Love and Friendship novel, which is it had a source material, sort of found source material, and then an editor, and the editor's making all these comments on it. And and that, when I saw that format, I was, you know, flailing around trying to figure out the structure of the book. And I said, okay, it'll be in two parts. We will also have Jane Austen's letters of Lady Susan um, in the book. It'll be a hybrid thing. And get a, also a two-for-one deal for the reader. Because I see a lot of people seeing the movie and going off to read Jane Austen's letters. And I want them to be able to find them in a good format. But I'd also like them to read our version. I think one of the things that your version is so wonderful is that, uh, especially for a book-movie combination, is there's things that happen in the book that don't happen in the movie. Yes. And and I think so it's it's really makes it a lot of fun to read. Uh, and uh, many of these revolve around the storyteller in the book, Rufus. So tell us about Rufus. I love Rufus. He's such a he's such a I can't say it. he's a doofus. Yes, Rufus the doofus. Um, that wasn't intentional. Uh, I mean, it's intentionally it's a doofus, but not intentional that it's a rhyme. Uh, so, well, there's something magical in in the Martin um, genetics. Uh, so, Sir James Martin in the film really is the secret of the film. Um, I mean, Kate Beckinsale's wonderful as Lady Susan. It's fantastic. But there's this sort of surprise element of Tom Bennett as Sir James Martin. And then... Um, to have someone as dim as Sir James, like the whole time, would be difficult. So to give him this nephew who's a little bit smarter, maybe, definitely more literary and intellectual, sort of gives tons of material for the writer. I, I thought uh, you do a lot of great um, examination of class in the book. I mean, it's it's a book that speaks directly to the luxury gap we uh, experience now. Um, and much of it revolves around, I mean, the everybody in that book is like living in an airtight, terranaut bubble that's essentially completely sealed off from the no, rest of no, the real no. world. Ru- Rufus is in trade. Mm-hmm. Rufus goes out into the rare and precious woods market, even though he's a Martin. Right. And so he's going to take the semicolon out into the world <laughs> as his lance. Well, uh, that brings me to another part I love about the book, which is the uh, your experience and and uh, explanations and having fun with punctuation. And this carries over into the movie too. There's a great scene in the movie that I don't want to talk about, but I'd like you to talk about um, your problems with Jane Austen's punctuation. Well, it's just a crack uh, that we we put in the novel, and and as many of the Austen followers say that um, punctuation spelling hadn't been standardized in the 18th century when she wrote this. So um, myself, I'm very keen on whatever Jane Austen might have chosen to do, but it gives Rufus the the chance to try to discredit her more. Uh, I think a 
Rufus is such an in, on such an interesting quest because on one hand he wants to rehabilitate, repair a lady Susan's reputations. That's what he claims to be doing, all, uh, while accomplishing exactly the opposite. <laughs> and I think that's one of the uh, truly exciting experiences of this book to watch him just twist in the wind. I really you think so. You're one of the first people, first people, first persons I've talked to who read the book before seeing the movie. And so you don't think he effectively defends Lady Susan? Well, I, I he <laughs> not exactly. No, I think that that he you can he see tr- beyond, you can see through that. You can see through it, and that's I think one of the interesting um, aspects of this book. There are many levels of narration, and what uh, is called theory of mind, where one character posits that they try to understand what another character is thinking, mm-hmm. and. Rufus is clearly not so good. He's not so good at that, <laughs> which is one of the real uh, joys of reading this book. And it it's interesting that as a writer, when you're going about and you're you're doing two things at once, you're both fleshing out Austin's letters extremely, yet you're also holding back a lot. And I'm wondering, is was there a point in your writing process where there was more there that you had to trim out to get to this kind of tension point? between what Rufus knows and what he's doing and what uh, the character, other characters know. Yes, I had to exclude a lot of information, but that was also true in creating the script for the movie. So the big, the long march of this kind of adaptation is excluding rather good material. Mm. So her novella is filled with really beautiful comic material, and um, there was this constant whittling down and paring down. I really liked the uh, prose in the book. I thought you did a great job of capturing um, the silliness of some of the language and some of the elocutions and some of the explanations. And I loved Rufus's pedantry. <laughs> that was that was really fun. Well, I think there's sort of a play of periods there because Rufus, um, we're changing the the date. That his book in in a next corrected edition, his version comes out in 1868, mm. not not earlier. That's that was a bit of an error on our part, but he was probably writing it in the 1850s, 1860s, and um, it's a very pretentious period. In a strange way, I think we're much closer to the way people were and thought and or declared themselves in the 1790s than in the 1850s. There was a sort of prideful arrogance. Um, in the sort of early Victorian period that we don't feel very close to. I I think that... Uh, because we have our own prideful arrogance. <laughs> so there's the clash of prideful arrogances. <laughs> uh, the, the rich don't fare well in this book in terms of the way they, they look. They, they, they are made to be, um, I think, extremely reminiscent of the 1% uh, today. Was that deliberate, or did that just happen because they are ever thus? Yes, I think the latter, uh, the certain truths are internal. (laughs) So you think that the luxury gap is here to stay? Yes. (laughs) That's unfortunate, but because I think you do so well with understanding and observing the classes in the book. 
Could you talk about your experience of class? Um, you've been traveled a lot. You've lived a lot of places. You've lived in Paris. You've lived in the United States. Uh, class is spoken and unspoken. It's really odd because everyone talks about this in both the films and, and the novel. But well, not everyone about the novel. But um, I don't see it, really. I don't really think I'm talking about class. But I think it's sometimes you're in the fishbowl and you don't see that you're in the fishbowl. And so other people outside think this guy's talking about class all the time. But I don't really see it. I mean, I think the narrator, since he wants to sort of destroy um, the de Courcys and their allegations against Lady Susan and their attitude towards his uncle, <clears throat> uses their sort of aristocratic, comfortable arrogance. And I think it is true that like one of the real marks of class is not what people think at all, a certain kind of moralism and condemnatory attitude towards everyone else is actually a mark of class. Because people think of sort of cyberitic, preppy killer kind of types, Donald Trump types, but it's not that. It's really one of the upper class things that they particularly love is feeling superior. And a lot of that is often a sort of moral superiority. You'll find very many sort of self-righteous, left-wing, rich people. Um, so, so class... Um, manifests itself in very strange ways that aren't typical. So in your usual lifetime movie, it's people clinking champagne glasses. But that isn't really class. You know, anyone can clink a champagne glass <clears throat> or, or a glass of Barcelona um, cava <laughs> or Prosecco. <laughs> One of the things that in this book and, and in the movie too, what exists... Um, is what I would call a reputation economy um, in that everybody's uh, trading on and thinking about their reputations or trying to build them up. It's almost, it's yes. very, there's a very economic aspect to that of saving, buying, acquisitory spending. I'm not sure. I think it is a, a, I think it is a reputational society, but I'm not sure if it's an economy. So I don't see necessarily the connection between reputation and economics necessarily in that world. But they did care very much about their reputation. When you created the uh, the the Mannerings, I, I think they are a wonderful uh, couple, the two of them. I'm glad you read the footnote about the pronunciation. <laughs> yeah. Well, the footnotes are one of the really fun parts about the book, I think. It's, it's a feature. <laughs> It's a feature. Uh, and you, to a certain extent, you um, duplicate them in a sense in the movie when you give the the title overlays yes, for the characters. I think that's the uh, <clears throat> closest to equivalent of a footnote we get. Yes. No, in Damsels in Distress, we had actual footnotes. In in the movie? Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, that sounds like fun. Uh, the, we were talking about the titles in the movie, but also I think... Uh, one of the things you do with the book is use the titles, chapter titles, to tell the story, which is something that we don't do anymore. These days, we're lucky if we get chapters and even numbers at this point. I had to kind of bulk out the book. <laughs> so if you put in a sort of wordy chapter title, it takes up a lot of space. <laughs> uh, the The main character, Lady Susan, is, is so much fun in both her word and deed. Yes. <laughs> Talk about um, creating her from the letters 
you know, Jane Austen's letters, the, the translation from the epistolary style to the flowing prose style, that's not an easy translation to make, is it? No, it isn't. I mean, there's a huge geographical problem, which also becomes partly the solution to the story. So geographically, to be plausible, people writing letters to each other, they generally have to be far apart or some distance apart. Occasionally, there's an exception like when Frederica leaves letters for Reginald or things like that, but it's it's a contrived and a bit of an artifice. So in that world, they have to be far apart, but in the world of a conversational novel or a conversational movie, they have to be within earshot. They have to be to hear each other's words. So there's a lot of information that um, needed to come out that Lady Susan needed to say, and someone had to hear it. Um, and her friend Alicia Johnson was inconveniently distant at some time. So there's invented a new character, Mrs. Cross. Mrs. Cross is originally there to listen to Lady Susan react to her first impressions of Churchill. Um, but then she becomes a character herself. This is what's useful about it for story purposes. So Mrs. Cross becomes this this wonderfully psychophantic character who repeats everything Lady Susan says, adding decidedly. And then, unfortunately, since Lady Susan's not going to pay her because of their friendship, um, she has to leave at some point. She doesn't seem very happy when she leaves. I, I thought that... Uh... Lady Susan's attitude towards everybody else is so interesting, and I, I have to say in the movie, it's superbly played by Kate, Kate Beckinsale, um, is that uh, she's almost a sociopath in the sense that she doesn't, I think, really understand that other people have feelings. Oh, I don't think so. I mean, I hear this, that she's a sociopath. I think she understands it well, but she doesn't care. <laughs> does, that make, does that make her any less a sociopath? <laughs> That yeah. makes her worse than the sociopath, doesn't it? Oh, she's not adhering to what society says its norms are. She's adhering to other norms, but I don't think she's a sick individual. <laughs> um, I I think there are a, a lot of places in the book where, and in the movie, where you realize that the rich just they just don't get it. And there's one place where particularly. Um, uh, uh, Lord de Courcy says, uh, "No, everybody should have their own, live on oh, their yes, own piece original, of land." Original de Courcy, yes, that's that. That was uh, that. That was fun to do. Yeah, and he was great at that. This is the actor James Fleet, who's been in many great films. He was the lovelorn rich boy in um, in Four Weddings and a Funeral. Oh, really? And so he brings that of warmth and and character to that part. Yeah. Yeah, everyone should live in their own land. Doesn't like the town. Everyone should live in their own land. It's sort of it's sort of kind the idea that he thinks everyone has their own land to live on. But when you were writing, so you were writing the novel when you were actually filming the book. No, Our I couldn't words. really get started at all in the novel until we had something called picture lock. So picture lock's the crucial moment when you're theoretically have every frame of the movie locked so the people in the sound department can work on it without having to change things later. And so you send it to the sound department for about six weeks, and it's your first break in the process of making the movie. So that's when I dug into to the novel, and I was really glad that it wasn't until then because I knew how important Sir James Martin was to the whole, to the whole world. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I mean, <clears throat> brilliantly played. I... Yeah, and brilliantly directed. I have. I mean, to my say. my worry about so I've always wanted to write novels. That was my first um, aspiration, but didn't I didn't have the guts for it. And then 
sneaked into it with the previous book, the the, the Disco Petrosian book. And then um, in this case, what worried me is getting to the scenes from the, the movie, the, the scenes from the script, and sort of the sensory deprivation. So you're deprived of the music, the actors, the costumes, the visuals. Um, you're deprived of all that. And how is it going to play? What's the imagination going to bring? And so the Rufus narrator is sort of providing a lot of sort of warmth and texture around those bare scenes. And so he's giving, you know, it's not, we're losing a lot that's in the movie, but we're gaining something else that could never be in the movie. Uh, I agree. I think that Rufus's voice is really essential to the book. And to a degree, I missed him in the movie, having read the book first, uh, because I really thought he was such an engaging character. And I love his, for example, when his digression on peas Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> he has yes. several digressions in yes. the book. Yes. <laughs> Wikipedia got a real workout in my research process. <laughs> um, did you did you pace his digressions in the book, or did they just uh, come up when you felt uh, inspired? I think you sort of naturally pace those things. Mm-hmm. Um, I had tons, of, and there are a lot of digressions and thoughts of, of Rufus that I couldn't fit into the novel because Little Brown was disgusted with me and, and screaming about, lack of a delivery and stuff like that. And I was trying to trick them into giving me another day, another week for, for <laughs> delivery. And finally, sort of the book was published without the final edit, maybe, or the final rewrite. And uh, it's, it's holding up. But if I had another edition, I would definitely change a few things. Anyway, so there were a lot of digressions that didn't get in. I didn't want them to wear it down too much. There's certain key, key moments when there's a digression of, by Rufus. You know, one of the things I think is interesting about this book is that the book and the movie are really centered around the extreme power of gossip. I mean, the power of gossip to build lives and destroy them is simply amazing. Yes, it is, and that's still true today. <clears throat> I mean, one of the things, um, the, the, Rufus makes ridiculously a lot of true points, I think. A lot of the things he says are true, but he presents them entirely ridiculously. <laughs> yes, which is And, and, and one enjoyable. of those things is that we tend to think that if someone has done one bad thing, well, there's just any bad thing you say about them is true. So, um, you know, there's so many things where people just go to town on someone's reputation because there's one infraction or one problem. Reading this book, I was wondering if there was another narrator between you, Whit Stillman, the author, and uh, Rufus. If there was another um, narrator who himself is a kind of an art school student from today, or is that just Whit Stillman? I don't know. I don't know what you're getting at, but it sounds interesting. Is that another book? Uh, Maybe. I think uh, you can write a book about somebody who's uh, researching writing a book. (laughs) <laughs> yes. And finds himself... Uh, I don't want to end up in debtor's prison, though. Oops. <laughs> Is that a spoiler? I don't know. <laughs> I don't think so. Um, there I are... mean, I did... There is a lot of sort of magpie stealing going on here because I am not a person from either the 1790s or the 1850s, 60s. And so a lot of things I kind of wanted to be authentic, and I wasn't sure... I mean, I can't write it that authentically. So I had first Jane Austen's material to use. So there's, you know, Frank plagiarism theft from Jane Austen. Um, then whenever I'd sort of not at all know how to do something, like to write a dedication of a book to a royal personage in period, I didn't know how to do. 
And so I stole that from Fanny Burney's dedication of one of her books, Fanny Burney, Madame d'Arblay. And then there's a poem that Reginald reads um, at, at a wedding, and that I stole from the biography of our general Henry Knox, head of commander of artillery in Washington's army. And when he married a Tory girl, a loyalist, a girl from a loyalist family, someone read a poem in her honor, sort of a toast. And I used that poem um, for Reginald in the movie. And then I used more of it in the book, because in the book you can get away with more words. <clears throat> so there is theft of that kind. And I never, they, they sort of put the book in print before I had my chance to do that page of acknowledgments, <laughs> thanking the editors, thank you know, confessing where I took things from. Um, so I wanted to do that in this radio show. It'll be my defense in the trial. You give us, at the end, you give us Jane Austen's letters, but not exactly Jane Austen letters. There are a few additions in there from <laughs> Rufus. Well, the, well, it's, it's annotated with Rufus's commentary. Yeah, which I think is a really fun, uh, makes up reading her letters a lot more fun. You get, there's another layer a perspective that you get in in amidst all of the usual uh, enjoyment you get from reading Jane Austen. Well, it shows how she concocted um, these these false letters to put Lady Susan in a bad light, and he shows how how, how they were falsified or probably falsified. <laughs> I when I read the book and especially when I saw the movie, one of the things I thought, you know, this is a really interesting book movie because it's tension and it's really page turn but there's really no villain in it I mean I liked Lady Susan even though she's to a certain degree a predator yes but I yeah. liked everybody else as well yes yes I don't really like um, condemning people to eternal damnation I prefer purgatory <laughs> and I don't really like the comeuppance um, structure of things that every bad character has to have a comeuppance at the end. And so <clears throat> one of the challenges in the movie, and I'm not sure how it works in the novel, was to make sure that there was no sympathetic victim. So we couldn't really say we're going to make a sim sympathetic villain in, in Lady Susan, but by depriving her of sympathetic victims, we keep people from identifying with the victim too much. So there's a wonderful performance by um, Jen Murray as Lady Mannering. They kept her from being identifiable, and I don't think it loomed that large in in the novel. Well, I thought in, I I would agree it was we Lady Mannering doesn't come across quite as uh, strong in the in the movie. <laughs> you actually do get to hear the shrieks. The shrieks, yeah. <laughs> Hearing the shrieks changes everything. Yeah, it does because so, they're likable shrieks. They're uh -huh. they're shrieks that make you compassionate, and they're shrieks that make you not care at all. <laughs> uh, I was really glad to see that uh, Stephen Fry had a part in your movie, one of my favorite actors from so many different series exactly. on TV. Exactly. He, he was absolutely wonderful. He's incredible. And he did a wonderful, I think it's on a website of a cinema in um, in the UK. I'll have to tweet that. He did a wonderful discourse on Jane Austen and Lady Susan. It was fabulous. Really? I'd be curious to hear what he had to say. I've, I've enjoyed his books as well. Yes. Now, um, you said you wanted to be a novelist. Uh, are you working on a new novel? Well, um, I sort of wait for the opportunity and, and the idea. I mean, I think that when my legs completely give out and I can't run around <laughs> film sets anymore, I definitely want to you know, write something big and not really based on something else. 
um, well, I, actually, I, I wouldn't write saying tiny, but but big in my mind, because mm-hmm. I like this idea of fairly short books, but filled with filled with information. Are you working on a new film? Um, I'm supposed to go back to do um, the series I started with Amazon, The Cosmopolitans. The Cosmopolitans, right. So, so I'm supposed to go back to that, but I'm changing the direction. So it's a little bit the blank page syndrome where you're sort of flailing around trying to know how you're going to go. I'm going to use the characters, but they're going to go off on a new adventure. Well, I'll look forward to that. Now, um, one of the things about a book like this is it's you have like all these different pieces to assemble. And uh, when you were assembling them, did you like have a map of how you were going to do it, or did you just start to have one big document and cut and paste everything together? Well, in this case, I had two things to help. So I had Jane Austen's original letters. Mm-hmm. That was going to be the appendix. And then I had the film script, and that was going to be the first half. And so I did have the building blocks. And then I had things like there's going to be the dedication to um, the Prince of Wales. Um, there was going to be the genealogy the cast of characters, you know, all these different elements that were going to be in it. And then I brought back some things that I excluded from the movie, such as Mr. Smith, the meeting with Mr. Smith at Hurst and Wilford. Mm-hmm. And I could get much more in about um, the ba- um, Alicia Johnson's um, loyalist background as a Delancey <laughs> from the Connecticut branch of the Delancey family. Well, I think uh, one of my favorite lines, both in the book and in the movie, and they come across so well, is is uh, Stephen Fry, <laughs> Mr. John Stephen Fry slash Mr. Johnson's line. I think the Atlantic crossing is a bit chilly. <laughs> I, thought, you. I think that uh, you must have had a lot of fun putting uh, writing all these. Uh, I was really surprised what a good punchline Connecticut is. <laughs> it's the Philadelphia of today. <laughs> Um, Jane Austen were used to thinking of her as literary and meaningful and filled with insight into relationships and deep and kind of serious. This book is hilarious. The movie is hilarious. It lampoons everything and everybody and and there's nobody's uh, balloon who isn't punctured quite thoroughly. Uh, What made you want to invert the, our usual sense and sensibility, so to speak, of Jane Austen. Well, I like your version of Jane Austen because what I find the problem is that in the film adaptations, it's being sort of created as niche marketing to women and girls. And so it's all about, in many of the adaptations, it seems all about romance of some kind and weddings and her clear, moral, comical sort of perceptive, sometimes scathing, observation is left out of most of them. And when it's been done as a comedy, it's been sort of a broad comedy without that. And so this is a chance to, I mean, this is a different piece than everything else. So in its nature, what she left as Lady Susan is very different in nature from the other books. It is much funnier, more scathing, and less serious. Um, but there's a lot of sort of true observation and, and, and moral seriousness in this, too. There has to be with Jane Austen. But this is more her Oscar Wildean um, extravagance. Well, I think for me, the power of Jane Austen is that she was one of the most perceptive uh, uh, students of 
human psychology before that science existed. Yes. And she expressed it extremely well and in a dramatic structure. And you yes. capture that in this book with the humor, which I think is really essential because um, having both the, I mean, the things you say, the things that happen in, in this book are serious. I mean, there's there are a bunch of very wealthy people who essentially have no problems, but those that they create for themselves very effectively. Well, some have real problems. <laughs> they're, they're potentially starving, so that's a problem. Yeah. Well, and, and that's what's interesting is that the kind of the veneer feeling. Um, and there's one really great line, a paragraph in the book where you talk about how the rich lose their money. Either they can lose it beautifully on horses or ugly in an ugly manner with stocks. I thought that was a great observation, which is still true. <laughs> yes. But it's, it's, it's all sort of true and not true. I mean, there's, that's the Rufus game. Mm. These days, uh, I think the rich I, alas, don't lose their money, or at least it doesn't come to us. <laughs> it doesn't come my way. Well, I mean, I think it's true that there there are stimuluses to employment occasionally and, you know, sort of fancy vacation spots, I guess. But, um, I mean, Rufus also gets into theology, and uh, that is something that was added to the movie and also is in the novel. That So I didn't want to do a moralistic um, situation with, with Lady Susan where she gets her comeuppance and is reformed or chastised or all that. I didn't want to do that. But I felt there had to be some virtue somewhere in the, in the story. Mm -hmm. There had to be something virtuous. So there are virtuous characters and there are virtuous ideals and aspirations. And so they get into theology. And uh, Frederica, um, one of my favorite scenes is when she walks to the chapel to sort of question herself whether she's following or not the, f the fourth or fifth commandment, depending on how you count, uh, <laughs> honor their mother and father. And um, then Rufus gets into the whole question of sort of theological belief and um, the leap of faith, which he goes back to the original oh. source, is the leap to faith. And many of these um, phrases, so we try to be accurate with the language from both periods, from the 1790s or the 1850s, 60s. Um, and a lot of things that sound to our ears as wrong is actually the way the phrase started. Mm -hmm. So um, good riddance to bad rubbish was originally good riddance of bad rubbish. And a lot of these things were... And one of the wonderful things about, I think, the original um, Jane Austen is that everything she writes is completely clear. We understand all the words. So you could pick up your alternative weekly from this week and not understand what they're talking about. But you read Jane Austen from 200 years ago, and it's all completely understandable. But it's all slightly different usage and slightly prettier usage and more poetical usage. And so there's this charm of, of anachronism, of the way they phrase things. So, you know, Mr. Johnson is still in life and, oh, I said that in joke. You know, this way of saying things is charming, and we could sort of preserve that in both the novel and the film. I've been speaking with Whit Stillman. His new book is Love and Friendship. His new movie is Love and Friendship. Thank you for joining me, Whit. Thanks very much.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.